on today's episode of the Coaching Coordinator Podcast, we give you a preview of the Cool Clinic coming up next week. We're going to start that on May 13th. You'll see an adjusted schedule down there. We had four coaches who were going into OTAs, and while they offered to fit that in during a lunch break or dinner, we moved their talks to Thursday so they could spend time with us and be fully engaged in this clinic. Again, look for those updates on the website. If you missed the early bird special and you are a listener of this podcast, you have an opportunity to save uh, like we did on the early bird at checkout. Enter the code COOL20. That's all caps, C-O-O-L 20 to save 20%, which will get you to the early bird special price. This is going to be a clinic you don't want to miss. We have Super Bowl champion Joe Gilbert, FBS national champion Kyle Flood, who's now at Texas, Dante Skarnecchia from the Patriots, Adam Stenovich from Green Bay, Keith Carter from the Tennessee Titans, Bobby Johnson from the Buffalo Bills, from the college level, Alex Mirabel from Oregon, Coach Stud from Ohio State, Jeff Quinn, Notre Dame, and Herb Hand from UCF, and of course, the original members of the Mushroom Society, Bob Wiley, Jim McNally, and Paul Alexander, with a special appearance by future Hall of Famer Joe Thomas. On today's podcast, Joe Thomas is going to talk about a few of the ideas we give you, uh, about 25 minutes of what was over two hours with Joe Thomas. We have a Q&A, and then we also have a film session with Joe and Bob Wiley. So enjoy this podcast. Check for the links in the show notes. It's cool.coachesclinic.com. And again, to save 20% right now, it's COOL20, capital C-O-O-L, all caps, 20, save 20%. Enjoy the podcast. All right, you guys are good to go. Okay, our next, our next clinician, Joe Thomas. Joe, I had the pleasure of coaching Joe. We're a great professional. Uh, he's, he's, he's a, actually, he's a better person than he is a football player guy, just so you guys will understand what I think about him, okay? Uh, he prepared well. He is very knowledgeable in the game. Uh, he played many years. He, uh, he played 10,353 consecutive snaps. Nobody will ever break that record again. He's going to be a future Hall of Fame first-round ballot. I said... You know, I used to kid with Joe. He used to say, you know, who's better, Anthony Munoz or Joe Thomas? And, you know, and they said, well, you know, Anthony's got the yellow jacket. I said, I said it's not the yellow jacket, right? It's the, anybody can buy a yellow jacket. It's when they give you the blue ring, Joe. That's, that's what's, <laughs> not many people get the blue ring. So, yeah, without to do, we're, we're going to have Joe Thomas. And what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll ask him some questions, and Joe will, will go ahead and answer the questions and give you as much information uh, as he can. All right, so without ado, Joe Thomas. Hello to the guys, Joe. I know they'll be happy to see you. Yeah, Bob, I'm really excited to be here today, and I'm very thankful that you've asked me to come and share some wisdom and some knowledge and hopefully uh, give people a little uh, – view into the twisted mind that we have and probably why we got along so well when you were coaching me in Cleveland because we saw the game a certain way and I think uh, 
that could be beneficial. So I think this is going to be a, a fun uh, little session here. It was, it was amazing working with Joe, how we looked at the game almost identically the way we looked at it as, as a coach to a player and a player to a coach. It was really quite uh, enlightening for me. Okay. All right. You've seen a number of offensive linemen, you know, uh, in your time. What attributes do, do the young players uh, make uh, when they come in to be successful? What do they need to get into the league to be successful? Well, having played 11 years for the Cleveland Browns, I think one of the things that I really like to see with young players when they come in as undrafted free agents or draft picks is an ability to sit in a meeting room and listen to what they're being taught. And it doesn't really matter where they are from a skill standpoint or a technique standpoint, but they need to be able to hear the coaching or see it and to be able to go out in the field and to be able to replicate what you're asking them to do. You know, there's a lot of guys that are great athletes that have this, this mind and body block where the things that they see and hear and they want their body to do, they can't get it to do it. And the guys that are the, typically the best professionals are the ones where you can tell them something like, hey, I want you to kind of put your hand a little bit more like this, or in your past set, I want you to turn your knee a little bit this way. And they're able to do that and replicate that with very little training and very little additional practice, because that's how you get better as an offensive lineman. Like nobody comes out of the womb as a great offensive lineman because everything we do is unnatural, right? You're sprinting backwards in pass pro, and then you're gonna to try to stop a 300 pound man that's running at you full speed or in the run game you're running like a gorilla with your legs wide apart and you're trying to create force from the ground up through your feet like these are unnatural things that are not born that you're not born with like it's it's not like throwing a football like everybody's been throwing baseballs and footballs since they were a little kid right and so it's a natural thing everybody's been running since they were two years old and so being a receiver and, and running and catching and being a quarterback and throwing the ball and being a defensive player, tackling and wrestling, like those are natural things that you've done your whole life. But being an offensive lineman takes practice, it takes repetition, and it takes an ability to do something that's completely unnatural and make it second nature. And I think the most important part of that is being able to hear or see something and being able to replicate it. Because if you can't do that, I don't care how great of an athlete you are, you'll never be a great offensive lineman. Discipline and patience plays a part of that too, I I'm imagine. Okay, what separates the the good coaches, okay, from the other guys? What do you what separates the good coaches and then you get the you know, hey, this guy's a pretty good coach, or this guy's you know, okay, just another guy. What's yeah, I think the, the best coaches that I have had were besides myself. Besides Bob, <laughs> of course, which is, you would fall into the great coach category. Um, I think the best coaches that I've had understand that not every player, not every person learns the same way. And so they have a high level of emotional intelligence to be able to see their, their athlete and to be able to understand, hey, this player, he learns best when I draw up on the board. Hey, this player learns best when I tell him what to do. Hey, oh, this player learns best when I show him film of exactly what I want to see from him. This player learns best when I make him take notes in his notebook. Oh, this player learns best when I make him put flashcards together. Like understanding how to get the most out of your players 
comes down to learning what they learn in the manner of the best. Like how do they learn something the quickest? Um, I, I think that is so important. And I think the other part is understanding techniques can be different for different players, but understanding how to take the technique that you want to see and fitting it to that player's skill sets. Because, you know, my pass set might look a little bit different than Mitchell Schwartz's pass set, than David Bakhtiari's pass set. But that's okay, because there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. But how do I, as a coach, lean on my experience and help that player get better without just making him try to look like what I think he needs to look like? Because there's a lot of different ways that you can pass set, that you can run block, that can be very effective. And finding the best way for that player, how that guy's bone structure is built how that guy's athleticism is expressed in his body i think those are all things that make a great coach the uh yeah it, it, it's amazing and, and the end result is the is the product and the end result is the production of the player regardless of what it looks like your guy does not make the play that's important however you do that I think that's a great point, Bob. I think one thing is offensive player, offensive players, offensive coaches, um, myself included, sometimes we lose track of the main thing. And one of my favorite quotes is keep the main thing, the main thing. And as an offensive lineman, the main thing for me is not letting my dude make the tackle. Like in the end, what I love to pick him up and slam him on the top of his head and jump on top of him and give him the people's elbow and stand over him and do one of these but that's not going to make the difference of my quarterback being able to throw a touchdown. If I just stand there and I block him and I lock him up, that's not going to really make the difference of my running back being able to hit the hole and be able to press and cut and then win at the second level against a linebacker or safety. Like that's the main thing. So I don't want to risk giving up my man making a play because I want to murder my guy. Like I want to do my job on every single play so that, all those other skinny guys that have the hot girlfriends, they're able to do their jobs and score touchdowns. That's the main thing. Now, if I can do that and pancake my guy or humiliate my guy or wear my guy out, that's a great thing also. But don't forget what the main thing is as an offensive lineman. You got to block your guy. You got to do your job. Excellent. Excellent. The uh, What advice uh, would you give to you've already given it. I'll, I'll come up with a, a better question for you. <laughs> what, which ways, uh, uh, what ways do you have to help offensive tackles in loud stadiums on the silent counts? Okay. What operation that you go through, you know, we get into noisy stadiums that can go play in Denver or you, you're in Oakland or you're in Seattle, which is a noisy stadium or city. What advice do you give the young tackles? Okay, on the silent count. So I actually like the silent count better than I like the verbal count by the time my career was over because the way we did the silent count with our center, we were all on the same page and I knew exactly he was going to snap it at an exact moment and I could anticipate that moment. Sometimes with quarterbacks, when they're giving their verbal cadence, as much as they try to give the same cadence with their mouth, they tend to get excited sometimes, they'll slow it down sometimes, and it becomes difficult to anticipate exactly when they want that ball, especially if there's a blitz coming or if they're getting excited and the shot clock's running down or they see an uncovered receiver. 
And so you don't get that consistency with a verbal cadence, but with a silent count, you can get that, especially when you have a good center that's on the same page and that you practice with all those guys. And my favorite silent cadence always was one where the center would pick his head up and there was a pause between when the head came up and when the ball got snapped. Because what that allowed me to do was I was peeking to the inside and I was looking at the center's head. And when that center's head came up, now I had enough time to be able to look back out to my player. And in my mind, I was always timing exactly when the ball was snapped. So then I wouldn't even have to look inside to see when that ball was being snapped. So as soon as I saw the center's head come up, then I could look out at my player and then I could just go. And I never had to worry about a cadence being sped up. I never had to worry about my man moving. I never had to worry about him changing his technique or all of a sudden me missing a blitz because I had enough time after the center picked his head up to be able to look to the outfield and see what was happening. And so I always had that comfort when we were in the silent cadence that I was going to get off on time and that I wasn't going to be surprised with what the defense was doing. The silent counts that I don't like are ones that the ball gets snapped when the center is still picking his head up. Because a lot of times I'm looking inside and I'm starting to move as my head is moving and that throws off my equilibrium. When I'm going from looking inside to looking out here and I try to move back into my pass set at the same time, it always threw off my balance and equilibrium a little bit. So that was obviously what we would do if we were going on one. Obviously it was one head bob. But you can do a lot of variations of it. You could do the one head bob. You could do the two head bobs. You could do the one head bob with a turn to the left and then a snap. You could do the one head bob with a turn to the right and a snap. So you can do a lot of variations, but as long as we had the same pause between when that head came back to the middle and the ball was snapped, I was able to get off exactly perfect every time. And so we would say on one was just a head bob. We would say uh, one L or one R was if you picked it up and looked to the left or looked to the right. And then you'd have a Largo count, which would be head up. And then if, if, if the normal snap was one count, we would just double it. So uh, on one would be like this, snap. Uh, on Largo would be like this, don't snap, snap. So that was a really dangerous one for the defense because usually you don't see the head bob coming up and then a two count before the ball gets snapped. So we were almost always ahead of the defense when we went with the Largo. And then when we went from a Largo to a one, the defense always jumped off sides because they're so they're working so hard to try to get a bead on when the snap is coming up that you give them two Largos in a row. Now they're kind of anticipating that longer snap. And all of a sudden you go on one, you're ahead of them. But if they're anticipating it on one and all of a sudden you go on Largo, they're always in the backfield. And the good news was they usually jump and it was enough time for them to be offsides trying to get back when the ball was snapped. So now you get a free play. And on top of that, the defense is backing up and not ready to try to start rushing the quarterback. So I thought the way we did the silent count was really good. And I, I would encourage other offensive lines to kind of adapt that type of a silent count. And, and then it also, when you, when you, when they you get off the ball, sometimes you're even a, a, a split here sooner when the ball's coming up, just right. It almost makes it looks like you're, you're so fast that you're offside and you're not. Right. And the, and the officials look at it and they, they want it and they're not, and they're not sure. So they don't do it. You know, they don't. <laughs> exactly right. It's really, really, really nice to watch that stuff. Cause if you're looking at the ball from the sideline copy, really as an offensive tackle, especially it's so important to get back because being ahead of those defensive ends is 
is the most important thing you do as an offensive lineman. So if you're watching that ball, you should really start moving the second that ball is moving in that center's hands. Like it shouldn't be now I go. It should be like the second that, that those fingers are starting to curl up on that center's hand, that's when you need to be moving backwards as an offensive tackle. You know, and you have some good centers. I know JC is pretty good. He's really good with his yep. with all that, all those, those snaps and stuff. Okay. Uh, go go about your preparation uh, for the week. How did, did you prepare? Okay. You, you, the game's over. We go through the film stuff. You know what I mean? And now uh, you're starting from that point on, okay, to prepare for the week, the next game. What, what did you do from... Okay, let's say our film session stopped at noontime on Monday. Okay, from that point on, what did you do? I kind of like to start from like a 10,000 foot view, the big picture first, and then kind of narrow it down to more myopic focus as the week wore on. And so the first thing that I'm going to do on a Tuesday or a Monday is I'm going to watch just a couple games because I want to get a sense for how the defense plays. I want to get a sense for how they rotate their defensive ends. I want to get a sense for how they like to come in and play their sub packages, their third down packages. I kind of want to know like what the guy that I'm going to go across from, does he get tired by the end of the game? Is he, you know, in great shape and I'm going to get his best stuff at the end. Like I just want to get an overall feel for things. And so after I watch a couple games, then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the pass rush cut up. So I'll probably go and I'll sort maybe the last four games and watch all those pass cut ups. Anything that is like more than uh, a three to go, you know, like first, second, third down and three or more. So it's not just a, a quick pass. It's more of a drop back type passing game. And so once I start doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my notebook and I'll write all the players that I see that line up over me and I'll write their number in the margin. And then I'm going to start logging all the pass rush moves that all of those guys are doing in those last four games. So then by the time I watch all those passes from the last four games, I've got a pretty good chart going of the defensive players I go against and all of the pass rush moves that they like to run. And so it'll give you a pretty good picture of the guys that you're going against and what they like to do and how they like to attack an offensive tackle. So then that gives me a really good idea when I show up on Wednesday for what I want my scout team guy to focus on that week and what are the sets or what are the change-ups that I'm going to employ that week to try to take away what my guy does best. And then as the week wears on, I'll usually try to watch an extra game every single day um, to try to get a little bit more familiar with the person I'm going against. Um, and then as I'm watching a full game, I want to see how my guy handles like a base block. How does my guy handle an outside zone? How does my guy handle uh, like a double team outside zone with the tight end? How does my guy handle a backside cutoff? Like what are all those things that you're going to see in the run game and how does the player you're going against try to handle those things so that once I'm practicing, I can work on those techniques that I'm going to employ on Sunday so that I'm basically playing the game four or five times before Sunday shows up. So for instance, when I was playing against Jason Taylor, he had those really long arms. He'd like to kind of stab in your chest and then he'd try to reach around and grab the back of your pad. Now his arms were a lot longer than mine, even though I was six, six and he was six, six. 
but I knew I didn't want to let them into my chest. So what I, I decided I wanted to do the week I prepare and practice against or play against him, I wanted to try to punch his hand when he'd reach his hand out. So I would never give him uh, an ability to get close enough to me to reach around and grab the back of my pad. And so what did I do that whole week? I had the scout team guy work on that long arm. And then I wanted to focus on that target that I was hitting all week so I could work on punching the hand. And then by the time Sunday came around, I'd practiced that probably three or 400 reps going into the game. So I had confidence that I could try to employ that tactic that I wanted to go against Jason Taylor. And then part of that is the mental side of it where, all right, I know that after I frustrate him a few times with his main pass rush move, what's the next thing he's going to try to go to? What's the counter that he's going to try to go to when his first favorite move doesn't work? So just being ready for the curveball when you, you stop the main fastball, I think is also a really important part. And having that scouting report that you build yourself by logging everything that that player likes to do, I think is really important because in your head, even though you're expecting his favorite moves, you got to be ready for that changeup because a lot of times guys can do a pretty good job. Like you go against Dwight Freedy, you're ready for that bull rush. You're ready for that spin inside but you got to also be ready if he just plays it straight and tries to run off the field. Um, and you got to be willing to react to that. You know, you know, guys, I, uh, we go to practice, you know, at Cleveland and uh, we got a lot of young kids sitting in the room. But I, so I come walking through the weight room and I come walking through the field house to go out on the practice field one day and Joe's in there working his hands. Okay. Right. And we got a speed bag and get a, a one of those balls on the string and everything. And, you know, and here's a player that's been around 10 plus years is an all pro guy. Okay. And he's still practicing, right. What he needs to do. Okay. For that week, you know, talk about a, a good pro. I mean, that's always impressive as a coach to watch that and say, my God, you know what I mean? And in the meetings, right. The notes he's taken, you know what I mean? He may know exactly what I was talking about, but he was still writing it down. You still wrote it down for you young guys. Okay. Pass protection. What do you think the most important aspect of pass protection is? You got to pick out one thing about pass protection. What is it? I would say balance is probably the most important thing. And I think the most important part of balance is having an ability to bend starting with your ankles. Everybody talks about knee benders versus waist benders, but where that starts is in your ankle. Because if you can't bend your ankle, if you can't get your, your ankle into that positive um, shin angle where your foot is like this and your ankle is like this, you don't have the ability to bend your knees and you don't have the ability to bend your waist. If your ankles can only go like this, then it doesn't matter how much you bend your knees, you, you can bend your knees as far as you want, but then you're just going to fall over backwards. So being able to create that positive shin angle allows you to create leverage in your lower half. And it allows you to have balance to be able to react to whatever the defender does to you. And I think one thing too, that is important to mention when you're a younger player, one thing to really work on is mobility in your hips. Because if you, if you have ever tried to stand on one leg, like, your, your ankle joint is basically, can, can move like this. You're, it's a hinge joint. Your knee joint, it's just a hinge joint. But your hip is a ball and socket. It can move 360 degrees. 
And so to be able to have good balance, you need to be able to constantly shift and adjust your hip within your hip socket to be able to react to the different movements and the different situations that your lower body is going to be in throughout a past set or throughout reacting to whatever that defensive lineman does to you. And that comes from your hips, but it starts in your ankles and having the proper bend to be able to have the proper center of gravity and balance throughout your lower half. And so working on that mobility in your hips is so crucial to being a player that has great balance. I think that's one thing that is completely overlooked and that I would love to see linemen start spending a lot more time on. Strength is good, strength is important, but having the mobility in the hips will allow you to have the balance that you have to have. Now, as a, as, as a coming out of college, when, when you were coming out, okay, all the reports, all my evaluations on you, and mostly every guy that worked you out or went up to the workout, okay, and did the film study, said he's a really good athlete. He's a good athlete. Everybody put that down. He's an excellent athlete, superior athlete, you know, above the average athlete, all the good stuff, okay? You know, when you were repairing your body, were you working on your core strength to keep the balance? Was that a major thing? Was that more on your lower body leg strength, your foot quickness? Was that more important than you than the bench press and the curls? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you're an offensive lineman and you benched 100 pounds, but you were extremely strong in your core and you had a very strong squat and you had a very strong clean power clean hang clean and you were explosive in your lower body it wouldn't matter how much you bench because the bench press only matters if you have something that your back is resting against then you can use your upper body strength right if you're laying on a bench the bench is stationary it's on the ground and you're able to press against that but if you don't have that bench your core strength is what determines how strong you are because that is basically the bench is your core it's your ability to to brace and then press. But the ability to move human beings comes from your legs. It doesn't come from your arm strength. Now, do you wanna have strong, a strong upper body? Yes, but the reason is probably different than people think. It's because then you're carrying more strength mass. You're carrying more body weight, which allows you to create more inertia. It has nothing to do with the strength of moving a person or stopping a person. That all comes from your legs because the leverage you create starting with your ankle, then your knee, and then into your hips, that's what are actually moving a player. Like when you see a block happening, the block is the only thing your arms and your hands are doing is connecting your lower body to that defender that you're trying to move you're never doing this unless right at the end of a block you're going to finish a guy then maybe you're pushing him a little bit or you know if you're kind of holding on to your ass and pass pro and you're trying to push a guy by a quarterback you might push him a little bit but other than that the pushing with your arms has no relevance whatsoever to blocking somebody else that all comes from your legs that all comes from the ground um, and so the bench press is almost an irrelevant exercise when it comes to measuring an offensive lineman's ability to move. Yeah, I tell I used to tell you guys, I said, the curls on the bench press are like, may get you a date, <laughs> but you ain't going to block anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? There you go, guys. A sneak preview of the Cool Clinic. Just a tremendous session between Joe Thomas and Bob Wiley. Again, there's going to be a film session as well. One of the highlights of this particular clinic. 
This is the premier offensive line clinic. If you're a guy who's never been to it, once this thing goes live, you may want to make that trek to Cincinnati, but uh, we look to be back here virtually when that happens as well. This clinic is all virtual, again, starting May 13th and going through Saturday. Each guy has uh, an hour to an hour and a half, uh, dep depending on who it is, uh, session to talk, whatever topic they have, as well as a 30-minute Q&A where you can interact with them. If you are an offensive line coach and you're missing this one, you are really missing an opportunity to develop and grow. Again, save now. Go to cool.coachesclinic.com. Enter the code for the single pass at registration, all caps, C-O-O-L-2-0, to receive a 20% discount and attend the Cool Clinic. Thanks for listening. Follow all we're doing at coachandcoordinator.com and follow me on Twitter at coach. Hey, Grabowski.